to Hope City Church, Melbourne, Australia. Stay tuned for another inspiring message. So God's glory is revealed on the earth through Jesus, through his power, through his love, and through his revelation. So revelation, power, and love are the three streams of glory that God poured out on the earth through Jesus. And so now he's passed the baton to us and he's um, pouring his glory into our lives through his love, through his power, and through his revelation. Revelation, power, and love. They're the three streams of glory that stream forth from heaven into our lives. The kingdom of God is a three-dimensional kingdom. The evangelicals who let go of power a long time ago just focus on the truth realm. And, you know, God has restored the power realm to the church where we're starting to see the glory of God's power come. But there's also His glorious gospel, the truth of the gospel message, which is absolutely phenomenal. It's the revelation of what God has done in the life of the person who's put their faith in Jesus. The miracle of what God has done. Do you know... Your spirit has been so gloriously transformed. There is nothing more that God can do for your human spirit, even in 10,000 years time than he has already done. Your spirit is complete in Christ. Your spirit has been baptized or immersed into Christ Jesus, into the King of glory. Did you know that your spirit is already glorified? A third of you, spirit, soul and body, a third of you is already glorified. And Paul even says that emphatically in Romans chapter 8. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he foreknew, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And now I used to be taught that that glorification is yet to come. And there's a sense in which, yes, we receive our glorified bodies when Jesus returns, right? And there's still more glory reserved for us when Jesus returns. But Your spirit has been justified, which means to be made perfectly righteous in the sight of God, which gives you absolute perfect right standing in the presence of the Father, equal to what Jesus has eternally enjoyed through all eternity past. Perfect right standing. So those whom he justified, he also glorified. And they're both in the aorist tense, which means a done deal, a finished work. God has glorified your spirit already. And your spirit is so full of the glory of God, the devil doesn't want us to discover that. And the spirit of revelation is um, one of the functions of the spirit of revelation is to open up the revelation of what God has already done in us through the new birth so that we can live out of the glory of what God has already established in us. And so our spirits are already glorified. And so our spirit is with Jesus In heaven, seated at the right hand of God, we are bilocational beings living in heaven and on earth simultaneously, which is pretty epic. So God has already given you a spirit of adoption, right? Um, You're not an orphan any longer. Your spirit was adopted. You don't have an orphan spirit, technically speaking. You, You may still manifest an old orphan heart and you may manifest orphan thinking and you may manifest orphan behavior, but... You don't have an orphan spirit. You've got an adopted spirit. But we're still dealing with the old orphan mindsets and behaviors and and, and so on. And, um, you know, 
with the, with the glory stream that's, that's going on in the church, sometimes there can be such a focus on the signs and wonders and the miracles as a display of God's glory that we can neglect the, the glory of our sonship journey, which is an epic, phenomenal, supernatural, transformational journey whereby we're being transformed into the very image of Jesus on this earth. And the creation is groaning waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. And one day the creation will be liberated from the bondage of decay and be translated into the glory and freedom of the sons of God, which means we are preceding the transformation of creation. We're ahead of the curve because we are undergoing this radical glorification process in our souls, changed from glory to glory. And so you might say, well, how do you go from glory to glory? Because God has planted you in His glory. So you, the first step is you're in glory. And the first step is from glory into more glory as we're being transformed in our mind, our will, and our emotions. Our soul is being transformed. Our emotions are being healed by the love of the Father. Our mind is being transformed by the, by the revelation of God. Our will is being transformed by the power of God because we now have an empowered will. We once had a disempowered will. The, the good that I would, I do not do. The, you know, all the, the good things we want to do, we couldn't do. We, but now we can do all things through Christ who endunamus you. Endunamus, endunamus is um, dunamis. It's dunamis power. See, we can now um, do the will of God because of His power resting on us. So His power is transforming our will. His love is transforming our emotions. His Revelation is transforming our minds and we are being gloriously transformed. That's the plan, at least, as long as we're cooperating. And uh, that's a big deal, too. <clears throat> but um, we need to really work with the Lord in what Jesus set in motion 2,000 years ago. He came to establish a heart revolution, a revolution of the heart that um, catapulted us into this dynamic dimension of supernatural transformation where our hearts are being transformed and changed. And so the essence of that, the, the heart journey is the journey from orphanhood to sonship. The heart journey is the sonship journey. The sonship journey is the heart journey. If we want to be on our heart journey, we need to be investing ourselves into an active participation with the Spirit in this transformation work that God is doing from glory to glory. And God wants to light us up. He wants every one of us to be lit up. The thing is, we've got this glory inside of our spirits. It's there. It's resident. But he, it says he's bringing many sons to glory. Now, the bring many sons to glory means he's bringing us into an experience of the glory. And he's lighting us up so that we shine like stars in the universe. Adam and Eve shone like stars before they fell. If you could see in the spirit what happened when Adam and Eve fell, it's like the light went out. Once they were shining like stars out of their spirits in mystical union with Christ and the Father, but the moment they sinned, it just went out. And now if you could see in the spirit, when you, do, you lead someone in a prayer to Jesus, if you could see in the spirit what happens, it's like, you know what a black hole is? A black hole used to be a shining sun, but it, it supernovas and collapses in on itself. And the polarity changes, and instead of radiating out, it now sucks in, every, everything gets sucked in. And when we fell, when Adam and Eve fell, 
their spirit was shining like a star. Then it just went like a black hole. And then we just became self-centered people, like a black hole, just pulling everything into us to try and fill that need. But then when we're born again, instantly it's like, our spirit explodes into life. And we go from a black hole to being a shining star and we now shine like stars. We've got to learn how to get what's in our spirit out through the lens or through the prism of our soul so it shines out to the world through signs and wonders, but also through transformed sons and daughters who are secure in the Father's love. A secure son who knows his or her identity in Christ is a powerful person. Because they are infinitely secure because they're infinitely loved by the perfect lover of their soul. And so God is wanting to light you up and raise up a company of radical sons and daughters. And so one of the purposes of the outpouring of signs and wonders in, the, through, in and through the church is so that we will live again in the presence of the supernatural. Bill Johnson, who I have infinite admiration for, says that miracles are our tutors. Did you ever, anybody ever read When Heaven Invades Earth? Yeah. Miracles, he says, are our tutor. And of course, for so many uh, centuries, the church has not had a flow of power. The, the lamp's been removed and, and uh, you know, Ichabod, the glory's departed and, and there's not been this presence of the supernatural in our midst. Now, the thing about the supernatural is when you live in the presence of ongoing supernatural manifestations, the consequence of heaven invading earth is always a release of ecstasy. Because if you read when Jesus did miracles, it always says the people were filled with awe, the people were amazed or filled with wonder. And there's two Greek words that are used, exostemi and ecstasis. And those two Greek words, actually, ecstasis comes from the, the root word exostemi. And ecstasis, I mean, that's an ecstatic thing, right? And so the fruit of the inbreaking of heaven is ecstasy. And so whenever you see the supernatural, it just releases a wave of ecstasy that just hits you. It's like the, the overflow of the miraculous. And so God's restoring the miraculous to the church because the miraculous in the church is actually a factor that is designed to be a stimulus to transformation. By living in the presence of the supernatural, seeing the supernatural, that actually assists the transformation process. And so some people just get caught up in the signs and wonders as an end in themselves. But there's actually, a, there are means unto an end because it's, it's heaven invading earth. And it's one of those factors that actually transforms you from glory to glory by being in the presence of the supernatural. So more Lord, more Lord in Hope City Church. May the Lord just release an epic outpouring of the supernatural in this house. We've got to pay the cost for Pentecost, right? We've got to pay a price through prayer, fasting, seeking God for full tilt Pentecost revival Amen. to break out. There is so much more that God wants to do that he hasn't done yet. You read some of the stories about the Azusa Street revival. Limbs growing out, new feet, hands appearing. Creative miracles. And I've not seen much of that at all. I've seen legs grow. I actually caught that on video, which was really cool. In high definition, we caught it in India. This guy's leg grew a full inch. It just came out of his trouser leg. And this guy with a high definition camera caught it on there, which was really cool. And so a lot of people can get caught up just in the signs and wonders and get on with the work of the kingdom, do the kingdom stuff, but neglect this heart 
revolution that Jesus is about because that's raising up a company of sons and bringing a company of sons into the presence of his glory. Um, you know, God revealed his glory to the children of Israel in the wilderness, right? We think of the wilderness, we always think of the wilderness as that barren, forsaken place, a stepping stone into the promised land, uh, an unfortunate necessity. You know, you have to go through the wilderness. But the wilderness was actually where God brought his people out of Egypt into a place where he began to reveal his glory to them so that he could take them into the promised land, fill their hearts with faith so that he could reveal his glory through them. And so the purpose of the wilderness was actually a staging post for them to be filled with faith in order to go into the promised land. And one of the features of the wilderness was that God relentlessly poured out signs and wonders. Not only did they walk through the Red, the, the Dead Sea, um, Red Sea, sorry, um, they also saw the, the pillar of fire by night, the cloud by day, the manna in the wilderness, the glory of the Lord coming down on Mount Sinai, the thundering and the lightning and, and um, Moses' face shining with the glory. And, you know, the wilderness was actually where God showed his glory to his people so that the people could go in and have faith to go into the promised land. Now, this whole promised land thing is actually a prophetic metaphor for us living in the glory. I run a school and I do an eight-part series called Taking the Promised Land and unpack this theologically, which I, don't, I can't do today, but it is so powerful, the New Testament uses the language of the exodus, wilderness, and conquest of taking the promised land as a prophetic picture of our journey coming out of the, of the world, being radiated with God's glory and, and Him blasting us with His glory so that we have such a heart of faith we can go in and take the promised land and become a church that lives in the promised land, which is really just living in Christ Jesus. But living in the promised land is all about kingship. And so we, the pathway to kingship is through sonship. Sons, orphans become sons, sons become kings. And so God wants to establish us in the land, in kingship, seated in heavenly places, ruling. Hey, guess what? We're the new rulers. Principalities, powers, and the rulers of the darkness of this world, we are far above them in Christ. We're the new rulers. <laughs> We're the new rulers. We rule over the principalities and the powers and the rulers as we step into our identity as sons and kings. Amen. And that's, of course, gender inclusive. Amen. So there's these transitions in our life. And, and I'm just a big believer. You know, actually, listen to this. This is um, Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. So this is retrospective. I'll lead her into the wilderness, Israel, and I'll speak tenderly to her, the tender voice of the bridegroom. Um, there I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor, which is the valley of trouble and adversity and trial, um, a door of hope. I'll make the valley of, of Achor a doorway of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, youth, as in the days when she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will, be, uh, you will call me my husband, that's the bridal paradigm, and will no longer call me my master, which is the servant master paradigm. I will betroth you to me forever, betrothal, intimacy, right? 
And uh, I'll betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I'll, sh- I'll betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. I will show my love to the one I called not my beloved. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they'll say, you are my God. And so I'll show you my love. I will teach, speak tenderly to you. I will allure you into the wilderness because the wilderness is the place of the revelation of God to us, the glory of God being revealed to us so that it prepares us to step into intimacy so that we can display his glory through us in the promised land. And so there's this great verse and it's um, in uh, Song of Songs, chapter 4. 8 verse 5. It says, who is this coming up out of the wilderness leaning on her beloved? You see, the wilderness is where we learn to lean on the beloved. It's where we grow in intimacy with God through God revealing himself to us as the lover of our souls, where he lavishes his love, his power and his revelation on us, to us, so that we are transformed by that so that we can go in and be established in the land and then release the glory of his power, his love, and his revelation through the church to the world as a city set on a hill. And so, you know, God was upset with the children of Israel because he said, because all these men who've seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, the miracles, and have, and have put me to the test these 10 times and have not heeded my voice, they will not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. Numbers 14. Ouch. They saw his glory, but it didn't change them inwardly. The glory is designed to change you inwardly and prepare you to go into the promised land. So, we need to establish a culture of living in the midst of signs and wonders and the displays of God's glory in order to fully transition into our journey from orphans to sons. God wants to lavish his glory on us to transform us into sons. Does that make sense? That's what it's all about. Now, sonship is such a central theme to the whole New Testament revelation. John 3.16, everyone knows it off by heart. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Right? God so loved. And the word sent is apostello. It's, uh, it's an apostolic paradigm. As the Father sent me, so I send you. So the Father sent Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So Jesus was sent by the Father as an apostolic representative of heaven, as a mobile, portable embassy, the Father's house revealed on earth in Jesus the Son. See, the Son is a very contextualized word. You can't just have a son without there being a father and a mother and family and brothers and sisters and and so on. A son is a very contextualized word. And so when God presents his son to us, it speaks, sonship speaks of the father's love and affection. And so Jesus was, was sent into the world as the beloved son. The voice came from heaven, this is my beloved son. The father was showing his son off. And his son was infinitely secure in the father's love. Jesus said, the father loves me. I bet he said it more than once. The father loves me. Oh, the father loves me. And he loves you too. And so God sent his son. Now, 
there's a number of other verses that, that point to this. There's a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 20. And I'm not going to have time to read the whole chapter to you, but a certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went away into a far country. And then the, the uh, vine dressers became nasty and uh, were not honoring the owner of the vineyard. Uh, familiar story uh, Israel is my vineyard. Um, and so he sent, it says he said, uh, he sent a servant, but they beat the servant. So he goes, oh, I'll send another one. So he sends another servant. They beat the daylights out of that servant. So he sends a third servant. They wounded him and cast him out. So three servants, speaking of prophets, sending his servants, the prophets, to Israel. He goes, and then, and then Jesus said in the parable, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Not a servant. I'm going to send my son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But as the story goes, they sent, they sent, he sent the son and they said, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and inheritance will be ours. And so, you know, as you know, they crucified him. And the vineyard was taken away from, from Israel. It was given to the Gentiles. And, you know, obviously there was a remnant of, of the Jews that also inherited it too. But the kingdom will be taken from you and given to a nation. And so the Lord says, what will I do? I know, I will send my beloved son. And so God, God's solution to the, the human dilemma is to send a son. An orphan won't do, but a son will. And God delights to send sons into the world. Um, in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through prophets. They were servants. At many times, various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. That's the opening verse of Hebrews. God has spoken again and again and again through servants, prophets. But these, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Now, um, I was with Brian Simmons uh, when he said he's just released Hebrews and James. And I was like, yippee, because I knew he was doing Hebrews. And I was looking forward to Hebrews. And I open the book of Hebrews in the Passion Translation. And I read, Throughout our history, God has spoken to our ancestors by his prophets in many different ways. The revelation he gave them was only a fragment at a time, building one truth upon another. But to us living in these last days, God now speaks to us openly in the language of a son. I was like, what the heck? Come on. I Facebooked him and said, Brian, that is amazing. Hebrews, it's amazing. He goes, oh, what, Hebrews 12? You like what I did in Hebrews 12? I said, I don't even got up to that yet. <laughs> Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, you know. God speaks to us in the language of a son. And he's got a, foot, a footnote, a, sub a little footnote at the bottom. We speak in English, God speaks in son. <laughs> For Jesus is the language of God. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. Jesus is the language of God. The sonship of Jesus is the language he now uses to speak to us. And I'm like, Brian, that's brilliant. God, when, when Jesus walked into the room on Brian and said, and commissioned him to write the Passion Translation, there's actually an interview with him on Sid Roth that's just been revealed. I don't know if anyone's seen it. But Jesus walked into the room and said, I'm going to unveil mysteries locked up in my word. And I thought, this has got to be one. God has spoken to us openly in the language of a son. God speaks son. So God's language is sonship. So the language God sends when he sends the word into the world is son. And everything about the son speaks about the father. When the son speaks, 
The Father is speaking through him. When the Son heals the sick, it's the Father who is working. Jesus is continuously revealing the Son. Did you know actually Jesus is the best Father who's ever walked the planet? We always think of him so much as the Son, we don't think of him as as a Father. He was a great spiritual Father. He fathered those disciples secretly, behind the scenes, behind the, in the backdrops of the ministry, behind the signs and wonders, he was fathering a company of sons. Just like Samuel, the prophet, my father, my father. And Jesus became a father to those men and he fathered them into a place of wholeness. And if he failed at that mission and just had a handful of orphans on the day of Pentecost, the whole thing would have blown up and it wouldn't be what it is today. And there wouldn't be a book of Acts. The whole thing would have gone spiraling down because a bunch of orphans are not going to cut it. It's got to be a company of sons who are secure in the Father's love, who can carry the Father's heart and go on to become spiritual fathers and mothers and reveal the Father. So we're talking about an apostolic paradigm of sonship. And that's what God's restoring in the earth. And we've got to give attention to that and cooperate with the Lord in that that work that He's doing in us. So God's solution is always to send a son. An orphan will not do. Now, Jesus tells another parable. It's the parable of the wheat and the tares. And I don't have time to go into it, but just quickly, um, there, were wheat, there was wheat and there were tares. And the tares were weeds. They looked like the wheat until they grew up. Then you could tell the difference between the wheat and the tares. And don't pull up the, the tares because you might pull up the wheat. Quick summary. And then there's only two parables that Jesus actually um, explains. One's the parable of the sower and the other one's the parable of the wheat and the tares. And the disciples come to him going, uh, what's this one all about, Lord? We just, we can't, we've been talking about this and we can't quite get our heads around what your point is. And he goes, well, I'll explain. Um, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stand for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy sows them, blah, blah, blah. Sorry, not blah, blah, blah. I shouldn't say that. I, I respect your word, Lord, blah, blah, blah. All right, Pent. I didn't mean that. I did but I got corrected. (laughs) So the field is the world (laughs) and the good seed stands for the sons. And he's sowing the sons into the world. He wants to raise up a generation of sons and daughters who are so secure in the father's love that he can just say, I'm sending you my son. Here is my son. I'm sending him to you. When Jesus actually prayed that prayer in in John 17, um, he said, I've given them the glory that you gave me. When you were born again, he imparted his glory. It's the family trait. Glory is the family trait. He said, I've given them the glory you've given me that they may be one as we are one. Mystical union. Then he goes on to say, I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one just as I, you, I mean you, Father, and you're in me. And that it's all about oneness and coming into this place of mystical union. And that's what it's all about. And uh, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you've sent me, the sent son, the apostolic son, and have loved them as you have loved me. That the world will know, Father, that you've loved them, that's all of you and me, just as you have loved me. How's the world going to come into this revelation? By us being the beloved sons and daughters of God. Just be loved. That's what beloved means. Be loved. Let him love you. Let him heal you. Let him transform you with his love because he will change you from an orphan into a son. 
and it's going to be glorious. Um, actually, I love what um, Brian Simmons does with that. He says, For they will see that you love each one of them with the same passionate love that you have for me. Isn't that good? Passion translation. They'll see that you love each one of them with the same passionate love that you have for me. Now, Jesus' primary ministry, as I just suggested to his disciples, was not just to train them in signs and wonders and the supernatural, but to love on them. His ministry to them was really ultimately a ministry of love. John 13, 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Passion Translation says, All throughout his time with his disciples, Jesus had demonstrated a deep and tender love for them. And now he longed to show them the full measure of his love. Just as I've passionately loved you. Amazing stuff. Now, I just want to tell you a quick little story. And uh, it's about a situation that happened in the church in Corinth in the first century. What happened was that Paul, who was powerfully established in this apostolic sonship paradigm, went out as a spiritual father to father new communities. And when Paul pioneers communities, he always seeks to establish them as a family unit of brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters. And, and it's, the apostolic paradigm is a family paradigm. The kingdom is meant to look like family. To the extent that we look like family, we look like kingdom. To the extent we don't look like family, it's, it's not kingdom. If we want to see kingdom, it's got to look like family. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about a parachurch ministry, a missions base, a local church, uh, marketplace ministry, whatever. If it's Christian, it's got to look like family. It's got to carry that family DNA. So Paul established every church um, because he moved in a spirit of adoption. He had an awesome spirit of adoption anointing on his life to actually adopt all of these new sons and daughters into the family of God and be with them and love them into wholeness. So his mission wasn't just to plant churches, preach the word of God and then go. He loved on those people. He poured into them. He established them in the sonship paradigm. And then he moved to the next city to plant the next church on his mission trips. So he planted this church in Corinth and he established them on the foundation of supernatural love from heaven, supernatural unity and love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. But the problem with the church in Corinth was that it started to descend into um, infighting, backstabbing, criticism, fault-finding, division. And you start getting this phenomenon. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. There's a massive split going on within the church. Now, interestingly, the Apollos camp, without going into too much detail about Apollos, he was a Hellenistic Jew from Alexandria. But Luke makes the point in the book of Acts that Apollos had not encountered Paul before he went to Corinth. Paul, in fact, just left Corinth at the same time that Apollos had left Ephesus and was traveling to Corinth. And Luke actually makes the point that Apollos had not encountered Paul. Now, Apollos came out of a Hellenistic Jewish tradition from Alexandria, which was all about philosophy, all about knowledge, and all about wisdom. Now, so here's this guy who's probably a bit more 
inclined towards the headier variety of Christianity. And Paul is this beautiful, humble father figure who brings forth sons and daughters. So here's the problem. Paul establishes a community where the, the, the plumb line is love. Love one another. Nothing greater than love. Paul's the apostle of love, wrote 1 Corinthians 13. Along comes Apollos and starts building on another man's foundation. And Apollos clearly had an emphasis on knowledge and wisdom, but made that the focus rather than love and family. And as soon as you make knowledge the key indicator of spiritual growth, you set up a spirit of competition in the house. Who has the best knowledge? Who has the most knowledge? And so that spirit of knowledge comes in and creates a, a culture of competition and actually destroys the culture of love and family. So Paul's got this crisis on his hands. What am I going to do? This is really bad. I, you know, what am I going to do? And so if you read in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, he's kind of working them over about you know, building with gold, silver and precious stones or wood, hay and stubble. In other words, building with just knowledge, theological knowledge. You know, there's a whole uh, subtext in, in 1 Corinthians. Um, we all have knowledge. So what? Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Though I have all knowledge, but have not love, I'm nothing. I'll show you a more excellent way than the way of knowledge. It's the way of love, right? So Paul has this dilemma on his hands because the goalposts have just been moved from love being the indicator of growth to people being full of knowledge. In fact, this was the beginning of the Gnostic movement. This was early incipient Gnosticism, which is now becoming a threat in the current glory movement. There is a, a Gnostic movement rising up, which is putting an emphasis on knowledge above love and community and family. So just be mindful of that, but it's, a, it's something that's going on in this current move of God. Um, so Paul goes, what will I do? He says, I do not, in verse uh, 417, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, take note of that, my beloved children, I warn you, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, teachers of knowledge, yet you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I've begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me as a father with his children. I'm a spiritual dad. You're my kids, my beloved children. So here's the crisis. And the next thing he says is, for this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord. What will I do? I'll send my beloved son. I will send Timothy. And it says, who will remind you of my ways in Christ, the more excellent way, the way of love, as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul says, what am I going to do? I know, I'll send my beloved son, Timothy. Isn't that beautiful? Same pattern comes through. And I, when I read that, I thought, that is it, just epic. That's amazing. And so he knew, you see, the thing about Timothy, he says, you know, Timothy's his dear son, my dear son, Timothy. My beloved son, Timothy. I want you to go there and sort this mess out. Get them back on track. Get them back on the love track where they're just learning to love each other and serve each other in love and build the body up in love. Get them out of this whole head trip knowledge thing because that's just going to create competition. You know, in that, in that paradigm, people exalt themselves over others on the basis of their knowledge. See, love makes you come under and serve Knowledge, excessive, highfalutin theological knowledge will make you exalt yourself over your brethren rather than coming under your brethren to serve in love. 
So this is the problem. This is the problem with any Gnostic teaching that shifts the focus away from building families and communities of love and shifting the goalpost to knowledge. So that's an important point for these days that we're living in. So Jesus, uh, Paul, sorry, <laughs> who like Jesus, he says, you know, um, let love be your highest goal. And though we have all you may have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, but have not love, we're nothing. So our sonship journey really matters to God. It really, really matters to God. And uh, I believe that our sonship journey with the Father is really the engine room for world evangelization because God compels us with his love to, to go out, to be the sent ones, to go out on a mission to transform the world. So I just want to honour this house. I want to honour you guys and, and honour the fact that I know that a lot of this isn't new because I know this is stuff you've been banging on already. But sometimes you need people to come in and confirm that and hear it through a different voice. And just to say you guys are right on track because you're building family and you're building community and you're not making knowledge the goal. You're making love and, and serving the goal and stepping into that, that family paradigm. And um, so Paul, uh, Peter says, love one another deeply from the heart. See to it that you really do love each other intensely with all your hearts. And I just I do believe that the, the best way to get healed of our orphanitis is to get into community. Community heals the orphan heart. So often in my early days when I started discovering the, the inner healing paradigm, Jesus healing broken hearts, I saw it very much as an individual thing between you and God. That it was just you know you and God and God pouring his love down into your heart and you getting all healed up by the Father's love as he ministers his love into those wounds and those broken places and the rejection and the trauma and the pain that he heals our hearts up. But I've come to see that there's these two axes to this whole thing. There's the vertical axis and there's the horizontal axis. And there are some things that don't get healed just one-on-one -on -one in your relationship with the Father, if you can hear that. They get healed in the context of community. So community becomes the place on earth where hearts get fully healed. And so for all the people who, you know, get ticked off at the church and spiral off into um, no longer being involved in church life, what they're doing is they're cutting themselves short of the opportunity that God's provided through the body because you you, we got wounded in relationship. We get healed in relationship. Isn't that true? All the, most of the wounding and the brokenness that's come into our life has come through abuse at the hands of others or rejection at the hands of others or abandonment or cursing and words being spoken which have messed our hearts up but the real indicator of restoration the real litmus test is a heart that can be together with our brothers and sisters and love each other fervently from the heart so God provides community as the horizontal axis for our healing and transformational journey and I think that um, that this actually is the engine room for, for world evangelization. This is how we're going to get the mission done. We've got to get our hearts healed up so we don't race out as servants. We, we go out as sons in the glory. See, the Great Commission was actually given to that group of people. It says he loved them to the end. And at the end, he says, go. Glory and commissioning. See, the commissioning comes to those who've beheld the glory. 
when um, Isaiah beheld the glory, he, um, the Lord, after the glory encounter, said, who shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah is like, pick me, pick me. I'll go, I'll go. Because he's just beheld the glory, right? And he's like, the glory of God. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then the Lord says, well, who am I going to send? And he goes, I will go. I've beheld your glory. And then the Great Commission was actually given to a group of people who had beheld his glory for three years. So a lot of times, the, the orphan heart, you know, we want to achieve something in order to receive something. And sometimes people get so swept up in the signs, the wonders, the, the mission, the miracles, the, the evangelism, the mission of the church, but we can go out as orphans. And if you go out with an orphan heart, you might give an orphan heart away. But if you go out with a heart of sonship, you'll give the heart of sonship away. And you'll be expanding the kingdom in an apostolic way because it'll be an expression of the Father's love.